0: Hello, this is Peter Jacoby for Profiles. My guest in the studio today is Georgia Flazanis, professor of orchestral studies and violin at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music and former longtime 20 year concertmaster of the Minnesota Orchestra. Welcome. It's nice to be here. Georgia Flezanis, you have a wonderful name <laughs> and I want to know something about its origin.
1: Okay. Well, this, the easy part is that Flezanis is a Greek name. If you were to take a plane to Athens and then take a boat from there or a ship from there to the island of Ikaria and you got off there and then you got on a tiny little boat, really a boat – and putted along until you got to the island of Furni, which is where my father was born, you'd meet a village full of fleas (laughs) So the name is very common on that island, but very few of them left and came to America. They're all still there. They're pretty much still there. The Georgia part … Of and it's course, J O R J A. That's the significant part. My grandmother was Georgia, spelled the normal weight of the state. But my mother, in her bent to make a creative artist out of one of her children, decided to take a name, a spelling that she says she picked up reading a fictional novel at the time around my her pregnancy with me, and she just latched onto it and thought this was going to be the. B's knees and well, I've just had to spell my name thousands and millions of times mm-hmm. <laughs> since then.
0: It's a great one. Uh, thank uh, you. I have to ask you. I know you've been you've been teaching uh, during a number of the years that you did your orchestral work, but now you've really switched almost full time from one to the other. What caused you to decide to move from the orchestral ranks into academia?
1: Two things. One, it had always been in my mind to transfer at the point when I felt artistically both satisfied in my – the career that I would put into my artistic life as a player in an orchestra. And of course that was a very hard thing to know when that would occur and what would make me feel that way. But there were many circumstances that made that very clear to me. In fact, I think the number 20 is one of them. Mm-hmm. And anyway, the second thing was that I I had a very interested university that wanted me to come and, and was very excited about what I did when I taught. I, so I think it was – it had to be a twofold. I had to be ready to go and I had to feel I was going to the right place. And in a sense, the invitation to come here happened four years ago before I actually came. And uh, my – Right at that moment, the Minnesota Orchestra was in the middle of recording all the Beethoven symphonies with Osmovenska, a project that gave me tremendous stimulation and challenge and a kind of growth that I – with an entire orchestra uh, recording this most consummate and difficult repertory – uh, that I didn't want to miss and I had been – I was halfway into the project and I could not imagine jumping ship before the last note was recorded and that was going to be ending in the middle of my 20th year with the orchestra. and So the parts of the puzzle just came together and you may ask why. Why was teaching that important to me when I had a wonderful job and and a tremendously uh, active public life uh, in, in a city that I, I have to say I loved living in? And the answer to that question is that since I have taught all along I've always been aware of how narrow or limited the teaching is specific to orchestral study. It's in in the larger sense as part of the curriculum. And when I was asked to come here and was talking to Larry Hurst who is of course an orchestral player and has prepared and successfully had his students enter into orchestral jobs all across the country, he understood my desire to have that as a centerpiece to my teaching here and together we have – in my coming here, have actually begun to create a position where I go into the four orchestras that I work with and become a, a real second presence to the conductor so that I'm teaching on the ground issues, what it is to have to be in the section playing, what it is to actually listen interiorly to everything that's going on in the orchestra, not only just the first violins but across the cellos and, and the way that string players play and certain amazing number of technical things that I've learned over the years that I can pass on and share with them. In addition, I have repertory classes that I also give, which are another great opportunity to induct people into the repertory. It's For me, it's my love of the repertory that drives my teaching, of course, on that subject.
0: So you've answered my question about what is the professor of (laughs) orchestral studies. Uh, But it is unusual, isn't it? Does this exist in a lot of places?
1: No, (laughs) it doesn't, which is why I think it's not really quite this way for a veteran orchestral player to actually – Join a faculty and bring a high priority of that which they have the greatest expertise into the curriculum that really has not really been done quite the same way I think it's pretty uh, it 's pretty pioneering, and I think it's also great in a way which was a little f- daunting to me that I had so many orchestras, so many conductors. But then, when I put two and two together on that, I thought you know first of all i 'm a workhorse. I take on a lot more than I've – I've never been a short shrift person. <laughs> so the idea of having a lot to teach and working with a lot of conductors, well, this is not not a problem with me. I, In a given season, I have to work with seven or eight or ten different conductors. So it was all essentially a remeshing or a redistributing, redesigning of the life that I had but just promoting it. And disseminating it in a very instructive way into into my daily life. I I have to say my playing with the orchestra rehearsals, inside the orchestra rehearsals, gives me the great satisfaction of keeping my hands on the repertory. But doing it and realizing how difficult it is when you're around still people who are learning how to do it. But if you can be a tremendously firm beacon in those rehearsals, the students, as I remember myself with being in the same situation next to a mentor – The execution by a professional is so clarifying and so inspiring and and motivating that you learn faster. And so the conductors have an ally, and I then am actually able to be the on ground, as I say, on the ground field mentor.
0: Now you have a fellow concertmaster on the faculty, Alex Kerr. And I've spoken with him on on this series, but he doesn't have those kinds of responsibilities, even though he has that same background.
1: yes, he and I share the uh repertory class concept, and we between the two of us it's absolutely well I can only say it's it's a gold mine for the students to have two extremely qualified concert masters giving classes uh, of a sort that might have maybe 10 or 15 students in it to get that individual attention on how to execute these things, this repertory, I I don't think that exists anywhere either, certainly not of the dual caliber that we've got here. And just that we're both here and just that we both do interact with the orchestra, he has sat in and played in the orchestra, definitely. He opened the concert this season. Uh, He's played a concerto with the orchestra. All his collateral – As the same with mine, how whatever I do artistically in my performances, all that collateral just sends the message that to be a well-rounded musician is what's important here. Not that I'm just an orchestral player but like Alex, you can get up, you can play a concerto, you can sit down and play chamber music. You're a musician. Basically, you're a well-rounded musician.
0: Let's go back. Uh, Let's trace your musical roots. How did it all begin for you?
1: Well, I'll, I'll go back to my mother and her desire for a violinist in the family. Who knows why parents get the bug to do <laughs> this, this kind of selection, I, you will be a this, you will be a that. In the case of my family, um, they were – neither of them educated in any way. They were very simple, basic people who loved classical music. And they had a number of recordings, which I could listen to. But the more important thing is that I had a brother eight years older who was the first anointed, and he was the (laughs) one to get the violin to to begin with. And for eight years as I grew up, I watched his lessons. I got to know his teacher, who was a public school teacher. And he just did not want to become a musician. It It was a torture, basically, for him. But my mother was determined to make... My, that violin teacher happy every week and she always had a little Greek hors d'oeuvre for him waiting. It was the old days. He would come to our house and he kept an eye on me. He kept noticing me and I, I wanted to be a pianist. I had a little piano and, and I was always practicing when my brother was playing his lessons. So obviously you know, I had music pouring out of me and at the time when my brother suddenly was given his walking papers or he accepted his walking papers – I was ready to just jump in and start the piano, but it was not to be. So my mother was the one who said, it's your turn. And it was only because I loved this man, who was a man I truly still feel is the one important person to put on my resume, is the man that started me. He still lives in the Detroit area. He was a saint. I mean, he he brought us out of the rubble, basically. <laughs> this these kids with just you know nervous energy and bodies that were gangly and growing, and he had the most gentle and wonderful way of introducing the violin into our into our lives and From the public school activity in Detroit when I was growing up, I had lots of experience and exposure in orchestra and in chamber music with a high level of, of student quality around me in that period in Detroit, I can tell you there are maybe well, I don't know, 10 or 15 people in my age group who are sitting either as leaders in orchestras in this country or are in very, very top-ranking orchestras. It was a golden period. It just was a golden period for, you know, what can I say? Were we the talent or was it just that the teachers and the school support was there? I think it's the latter to begin with. And the students just gravitated to it and became participants of it. So from there, I went to Interlochen. I got scholarships to go there in the summer. Um, you know, I had to go on scholarship. My parents could not afford this. So there was an incentive for me to do well. And when I really started to love the idea of music and f- enjoyed the social aspect of it because I was a very shy – you would not believe this, but I was a very shy person, really kind of a wilting flower, very just unsure of myself except through the music. And the music brought me out – and therefore I worked harder.
0: That's not really so unusual. I mean there are actors, for instance, who are very timid, very different when they're out of character. You're in right.
1: You're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I learned to change that as you can tell. <laughs> I think in part because, again, both my parents were quite demonstrative and I think Greeks tend to be a lot of hand motion, Mediterraneans, There's a lot of – just exuberance and yet there had not been a real role model in my family for a woman to go out and do something beyond you know into college and into a real developed uh, educational pursuit and so you know I one had to find one's way i was fortunate to Oftentimes just in meeting people, even boyfriends I have to say who, who suggested I should go to this school rather than to go to that school and in going to this school, which was the Cleveland Institute, my first school um, of – outside of high school, I met some of the most important people to shape my life. One of them was – well, my teacher Don Weilerstein at the time but also James Levine who was the conductor of the orchestra at the Cleveland Institute just happened to be there with the Cleveland Orchestra as an apprentice conductor and was training himself conducting more by having the orchestra at the institute. So I did opera with him. I did unbelievably difficult and challenging repertory from ludoslavsky to Babbitt to Carter, all the current composers that he felt were important to the, to the whole progress of music as well as learning how to be an absolutely crackerjack orchestral player. Those sort of, you know, again, serendipity – aspects of life, steered my training and my last training, which was at the Cincinnati Conservatory, was crowned by working with a very demanding quartet leader. That was Walter Levine from the LaSalle Quartet who not only shaped my musical – continued to shape my musical uh, life but also introduced me to a more in-depth thinking about music. He was a very – and is an extremely intelligent man. And quite awesome, actually, in his intelligence. So to go to a lesson with him was not just about the violin. It was about what can you tell me about this composer? What can you tell me about this form? You know, that was the merging of both sides of the brain. So by the time I left to go on my job hunting, I was pretty ready in a way, pretty well trained to jump off and go. Well,
0: let's – take a pause and uh, listen to some music. And I noticed you brought a recording that has very little to do with the violin or what seemed to, and that is Yussi uh, Burling singing, Lenski's aria from Eugene Onegin. Uh, tell me what is so special about Burling and, and or this recording. I love voices period, great
1: voices, and I consider this one of the great voices of the 20th century and for our recorded uh, access to great singers of the 20th century, I think there's a – just a naturalness to this voice. I think there's some singers that just are imbued and and endowed with an instrument that is so magnificent and so natural and so able to just be absorbed or absorb – the uh, demand dramatic demand that is put upon them in some of the most let 's say deeply moving moments in operatic dramas, and this aria has to not only vocally take us through the questions and the the great uh, sorrows of Lensky but this anticipation of his thought that he will die soon at the hand of a friend and because of a mutual love of the same person. It could not be a more emotionally strenuous and sophisticated situation to find oneself in as a tenor. But putting that aside, I think that the, the essence of great singing is that you are instantly sensing that situation by the vocal quality and the emotion behind the singing. I find that great singers often change the way I I play every time I hear them and I always encourage my students to sing as well as to listen to great singers, to unlock the true, I think, expressiveness that is in us that we oftentimes forget is really um, part of I think the voice, even if it's just an inner voice, that connects us to our playing as instrumentalists. Mm -hmm.
0: Tenor UC Buerling singing Lensky's aria from Eugene Onegin, one of the choices, uh, musical choices that Georgia Flizanis, our guest today, has brought in. Let's turn to your orchestra years for a few minutes. Uh, they must include some potent memories of conductors, of soloists, of situations. What is life like being in an orchestra? you know, we see it from the outside <laughs> you've lived it from the inside
1: i've always loved the community feeling of an orchestra literally the number of people that all get together file on stage the sort of the orderliness of it this idea that you're in you have components small big it's defined and organized in a way that is suited into these sort of tonal choirs of the string choir, the wind choir, the brass choir, the percussion. Its complexity and the simplicity of it has always appealed to me. It makes great noises and I love that about it. I love the roof being taken off. I love the, the immense subtlety and delicateness and refined quiet and hushed way that orchestras can also absolutely send us into parts of ourselves that just only large bodies of sound can do it's a whole different thing of course with a string quartet that's that's got its own world of temperament and and of course intimacy but when a large body of players can play with such intimacy it's it has a whole different hair raising kind of quality to it so there's just the sheer sound stimulus that i that i just love just for its own sake i also have been always drawn by the olympian requirements that it that it asks of the players to be able to play together with such precision given the yards and miles apart that we have to sit on a stage and do things at the same within the same synchronized second i never became complacent with that because you can't because it's not ever assumed it will happen. It's got to be worked at. It has to be something you believe and that you have a will to execute each and every time the orchestra plays. So there is this sense of compatibility and collaboration that marks, I think, really a desire and a commitment and a devotion that's really geared to that animal. Um, You have to both love – the demand that it asks, and you have to also understand the sheer quantity of music that you will learn in the course of your life, sitting year after year, as I did for thirty years. The thrill of l- being able to scale all that all those mountains week after week is again part of the great um, nutrition of the orchestra, but you have to you have to be ready for it, and you have to be. Certainly, extremely good as an athlete because it is a huge physical demand to do that week after week.
0: And I guess having different conductors each brings something unique, sometimes more successfully than others. Are there any that really stand out for you?
1: Yes. I would say this in the sense that They are the most remarkable creatures for me. The book has not been written yet on what it is that truly ignites the orchestra to play so vastly different between one set of hands and another. Yes, of course, like great artists, if you took 12 pianists and each had them play the emperor concerto, you'd have 12 different emperor concertos. But it's more more mystifying with conductors because of the – fact that it seems well of course there's a level of literally physical energy but not every physical gesture gets the same result so it is really literally a physiological and a kinetic combination of chemistry through the musical intention behind that the musical mind and the vision really of of that conductor i can certainly see right now the two hands that were the most totally opposite polar opposites that I was mystified by when I joined the Chicago Symphony and that were the hands of George Schulte and the hands of Carlo Maria Giulini. Mm -hmm. These were like two polar opposites, one very taut and spastic and exuberant but also athletic and muscular and um, fire branding as Schulte was – and this most poetic, soft, like a kind of um, – almost like a religious pair of hands. I mean Giuliani's hands had, had nothing about tension in them and when he did get tense, it always had this feeling of, of a lyricism and a kind of lightness to it. It was never heavy and the orchestra of course sounded just like two different orchestras in those hands. I think the other great experience that in that season that I was with the orchestra was Kublik who was a huge man, a giant man and when he stood up to raise his hands and extend his hands, you felt that every muscle in the entire breadth of the orchestra was in his body and he could lift you up and take you and it was partially – the eyes, the head, the con- the concentration—much as one looks at Furtwangler tapes and can see that he was volcanic, he could get into the blood system of the players and just shake the bones. So those three were quite remarkable as my early my early taste in in great conducting. I certainly enjoyed my years with Edo DeVart who was the teacher the – teacher. he was a teacher as well but he was my music director in San Francisco from the, my early years there and was the man who hired me not only there but then brought me as concertmaster to Minnesota. A wonderful musician, a careful thinking but also just concerned about the, the sheer sculpting and craft of playing with great etiquette and great discipline. A wonderful experience with Kurt Zonderling, a Russian conductor whose experience and knowledge of music was just so deep and full of great imagery and also just great understanding. Um, so precise in his stylistic vocabulary and again, the way he got the orchestra to play with a transparency and... Character and character is quite, quite remarkable with, with conductors to get a whole orchestra to smile in the same way. That takes skill. That takes a lot of skill. So that's, those are some of the few. I mean I've, I could mention Valérie Gergiev. I mean there, there are a number of them but they're fascinating, all of them and, and unique in every way
0: and sorcerers in, in their own way too. We've talked about singing and sorcery and so forth. I, you brought another recording which does not include you but uh, the Bush Quartet and uh, I think you said that there was a special quality that it brought to music and uh, so I'd like you to tell us why you brought this particular piece. It's uh, the Beethoven Opus 18 number 1, right? The
1: second movement of that, yes. Well, I think… Adolf Busch is certainly someone that I I want people to remember and to be have him on their radar. I think he was a consummate musician. Again, I would underscore that in in the same way that I would in the same breath say uh, Rudolf Serkin. And I mean, I think this this generation of artists represented a like a total a completeness. This was a man who. Who had a an active solo career uh, in Europe, Sec, you know, second to really probably no one at the time of his of his youth and when he was really playing full blast. His brother, of course, was a conductor and a cellist, and I think there's a level of philosophy as well as beauty in his playing. He senses the depth of what the composer's voice in this movement particular movement is seeking and some artists can make you really believe this is beethoven or this is what beethoven meant and i can only tell you this from the point of view is that i'm not listening to bush as much as i'm totally aware of beethoven, beethoven in this himself. performance
0: we have heard the second movement of beethoven's quartet opus 18 number 1 uh, performed by the legendary bush quartet another
2: choice of our guest georgia flizanis production support for profiles comes from smithville a locally-owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business Internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400 or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com
0: As we sit here uh, in the studio, we've just had a dose of reality and that is we were supposed to have the Cleveland Orchestra here for a residency and just before it was to happen the players went on strike uh, because of contract dispute uh, and it was solved within a day but not early enough to to save the residency. But it certainly pointed out the tremendous problems that orchestras seem to be facing today. They're running deficits. Uh, You've seen it from the inside. Uh, What's your view on where we're heading?
1: My view is fortunately been enlightened by – my very wonderful husband, late husband, who fortunate for me also was, was somebody who had a good pulse on the profession historically, these are not different times. these are times that we 've had many, many times before, and we will continue to have I would say it's an ongoing cycle
0: it's Michael Steinberg you're talking about yes, The wonderful musicologist and critic
1: yes. I just in fact happened on a a piece that he wrote with several quotes going as far back as 1926 all belly aching about the fact that the arts and orchestras are having horrible deficits that the economy is biting into the solvency of of the survival of orchestras 36 46. All the same tunes. This has been with us. This will be part of our banner, our slogan, or whatever it is that we can call it of just the difficulty of living in a society where the arts are dependent on public and and private donation. As long as that is the arrangement and that we are so dependent on it now because we are, have so little coming from government support, it is going to be constantly vulnerable to economic flux. So, I think we just have to always buckle down and always reassess how important is it for our society to have music? How important it is, is it to us to continue to support something that is not a a fly by night. It's been a thread in the communities that that has existed as far back as Middle eighteen hundreds. I mean, how old is the oldest orchestra? It's old, established probably in eight, the late eighteen eighties. I was just reading a book on the Philadelphia Orchestra and its early concerts with Stokowski in nineteen twelve. I think it was started in nineteen hundred. I mean, the thing is, is that the immigrants who came here and who who had music as part of life continued to want classical music and continue to want to have this music. Not just because it was part of their heritage but because it's a great thing to have available to you and have access to and to taste and drink from its wells as it is great art, as it is great literature. So, you know, again, I think the advocates, we have to stand – we have to stand together and we have to know as orchestras also what is enough, what is too much, what can our communities really give us, how do we have to – Give and take. And I can remember one of the stories in this book, I think it was on the Philadelphia Orchestra again that I mentioned earlier, about the orchestra having to cut back, you know, 40 percent of their salaries just to make it happen. Well, that's not great. I'm not happy to see that in history. But, you know, we're part of of the cost and we have to be very responsible.
0: But what does it mean for your students and their ability to – forge ahead in an orchestral career?
1: Well, they have to learn the values and the uh, particular facts of life of what their relationship has to be, A, in their community, the community that supports them. And I mean doing community service. I mean being socially out there with the community. It means getting to know the board of directors, These are the people extremely essential to the health and welfare of the orchestra. Orchestras tended to not have much to do with either of these constituencies. That was just not the norm. I would have to say part of my mission when I became a professional was to not do that and to go across the footlights and to make alliances with those people who will be the people who, if they knew who I was, might be more inclined – to support me under bad times and knew who I was as an artist as well as a human being. That connection is invaluable and I, and I will tell my students that and we'll have a forum on this very subject because I felt it was important for them to have a chance to ask these questions and to learn what some of us on that faculty who have been in professional orchestras, how we've dealt with this and how we choose to continue to think about it. So it requires education and it requires participation.
0: Well, I want our listeners to be able to hear you play, and you have brought some more Beethoven. So tell us why you have chosen Beethoven to represent you on this program.
1: (laughs) Well, this set of recordings of all the Beethoven sonatas was an important project for me and an important exploration for me of the language as one hears it when playing on – the instruments and with a sense of instrumental awareness of that which would have been in Beethoven's time. So you will hear a forte piano uh, rather than a grand piano uh, in in this performances. My colleague Cyril Houve is somebody who has done a lot of work with period instruments but all through, all through the evolution of the piano to – Again, um, sift out information that comes literally from the way those instruments functioned. And what I learned with these Beethoven sonatas is what functions is total clarity of texture and total facility in being able to play tempi that are much more forward and much more liberated from the incredible weight of a big piano. So there will be buoyancy in these performances. I used a bow that was more toward a transitional bow at the time of these early sonatas than when they were written that functioned and and behaved totally differently and made me play terribly differently, which made me evolve a very different vocabulary of articulation. It allowed me to play more like a piano and to be able to actually blend with the piano articulation better. But that was the focus of our, of our artistic desire in, in really exploring these sonatas and I have to say I was very excited at the result and very happy to have it there as – again, as a, as a signpost for my students and for the public to listen to.
0: Georgia Flizanis and Beethoven, her violin so glorious and sweet and clear. I came across a blog, a woman named Mona, who says that you coached her when she was doing an orchestral rehearsal here at Indiana University. And she says she was very good, tough in the way we need it, After getting us to play a very muddy passage together, she chided us for having uh, her do our practicing for us. Uh, So you're a pretty tough gal when it comes to teaching.
1: Well, when it comes to great music, we have to serve. And it's important to not waste any time serving. And it's important to get the message of response, personal responsibility and commitment to the composer. Counsel for the defense is what my wonderful late husband, Michael Steinberg, always said. You have to be the counsel for the defense. The composer is who we have to be the advocate for. And in that relationship, I think the highest form of us as well as the highest form of musical expression will will then proceed to come forth.
0: We're about to run out of time, but I wanted to ask you to – Uh, sort of bring us close to show how you operate in a coaching session. What what happens?
1: (laughs) Well, I try in the very early stages of working, I'll I'll say, in a chamber music group with what they first bring me. And when you come to see the, the, the degree of what that first offering is, it's very important to quickly build strong architectural shapes and principles about what that composer requires of us so that it's no longer a question of I like this or I feel this or this is um, this is pretty. It's, it's about coming to some of the fundamental issues that have to do with executing Bartók, executing Beethoven. Some of that is specific to the composer, but it also has to do with learning the specifics and fundamentals of great musicianship, which is rhythmic discipline and great sense of how to control dynamics. Forget about – I'm not talking about just playing in tune, but the the whole language, establishing the language. And you have to be extremely firm and stern about where that line is so that it's so clear – and so specific and so unwavering in standard, the standard of it, that there is no way to stray. You can't stray away. You have to keep coming and bringing the student back to where that principle – where those principles are and where they can, again, be liberated from their instruments. But you have to have the discipline on the instrument first. So I try to establish musical core and then execution issues and then – let it go. Let it, Let your energy come out of yourself. So there are a lot of obstacles in all of these things that I've just mentioned and you have to be a great cheerleader and you have to be a great in- inspirer.
0: Well, you obviously love your music, don't you? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fortunately, yes.
0: <laughs> well, I want to thank you, uh, Georgia Flizanus, for spending an illuminating hour. Uh, in the studio,
2: and uh, this is Peter Jacoby for Profiles. The program you just heard was recorded in January of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally-owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business Internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And the Funeral Chapel of Bloomington, providing funeral and crematory arrangement services for the chapel, church, and graveside. The Funeral Chapel, to honor and commemorate. 333-4400, or online at pdcfuneralchapel.com. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about Profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.